Almighty family. Welcome to the teaching for this weekend. Uh, we're continuing on in our study of Genesis 1, and I invite you to read along with, with me as we read the passage this morning. We're going to read verse 1 and then pick it up in verse 26. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They'll rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. Well, I want to recap a little bit of where we've been in Genesis 1 to set up what we're talking about today. In Genesis 1, we're introduced first and foremost to the main character, who is God himself. And this God is a creator. He's going to create the world. And God is not part of the creation. He is apart from the creation, but he creates it all. And he says that it is good. That again and again, seven times in this, uh, in this passage, God looks at what he made and says that it was good. And through the last several weeks, we've been focusing in on day six, which is the pinnacle of the story. It contains the most words. And of course, it's of interest to us as human beings what Genesis 1, this first chapter of the Bible, says about human beings. And it says that people are made in the image and likeness of God. So we are not God. We're part of the creation. We are created beings. So on one hand, we're less than God. But on the other hand, we are made in the image of God. And we live in this tension of those two things. We're not nothing or garbage, but we're not God at the same time. And what this speaks to us is an amazing amount of value, that each person is valued and valuable. John Calvin says we owe each person all possible honor and love because they're made in the image of God. And the vision, as we talked about last week, of what it means to be human is to become like this God. But there's another layer or level of what it means to be the image of God in the world that I want to explore today. The word image, as we talked about before, is the Hebrew word selim. And this can be uh, translated and used in the rest of the Hebrew scriptures as the idea of an idol or a statue. When other countries in the ancient Near East, the neighbors of Israel, uh, were, were uh, envisioning who their gods were, they often took their cues from animals in their world. So they envisioned a picture of who this God was by an animal, say a bull or this idea of the Leviathan, this huge uh, underwater sea monster. And they would make that into the image of a person or they'd have an image of that God, sorry. And then they would make that into a physical image, into a statue or an idol. And they would worship that idol as if they were worshiping the God. This also happened with kings. They might take over a new area and they weren't able to be physically present there. So they would set up a statue and bowing to the statue was very similar to bowing to the king. It was the same thing. It was his representation, physical representation in that place. So when Genesis 1 says that humans are made in the image of God, it's saying that we are the physical representation here on earth of this non-physical God that we see creating in Genesis 1. 
And this means that there's something about our physical bodies that have a critical and central role in what it means to be human and what it means to be in the image of God, to be in his image and likeness. Preston Sprinkle says it this way, whatever the image of God points to, one thing is rather clear. Our bodies are essential to bearing God's image. Our bodies are essential to bearing God's image. Now, this is not something we talk about very often in Christianity, but it's something that's very um, popular, I guess you could say, in our culture. This idea of embodiment and thinking about our bodies is very, very, um, lots of people are thinking and talking about it today. Here's one example, psychologist and embodiment expert, Hilary McBride. She says, we not only have bodies, but we are bodies. What a profound statement. We not only have bodies, they're not just containers for our souls, but we are bodies. It's who we are. Very similar to what Genesis 1 is saying. How you sit, stand, walk, laugh. How you show up and move and live in space and time as a body tells a story about who you are, who you've been, and what it's like for you to be alive. So this is the idea of embodiment in our culture that we should focus on our bodies to get to know who we are. And, and this is uh, in Genesis 1, but there's more to it than just this. I would add it like this, that how we are in the world, all these things she says, how we sit, stand, walk, how we show up in the world, are not just telling us about ourselves, but are an opportunity to reflect the God that we see in Genesis 1. That what we do with our bodies and who we are in our bodies are part of our dual role as human beings which is to reflect the God of the universe into the world and also to bring the praises and worship of the world, directing them towards God. So this is uh, embodiment. Now, why does, why does it matter that we talk and think about this? I wanna give us three reasons quickly. The first is that understanding embodiment is critical to becoming like God. If the vision of what it means to be human is to be made in the image and likeness of God, understanding embodiment is actually critical to that. One of my favorite authors is James K. Smith, and he's written many great books, but one of my favorites is uh, You Are What You Love. And in this book, he talks about a Western vision of embodiment, which is that we're brains on a stick. Basically, our bodies are just containers to carry around our brains. And uh, it, it, he says in this, we focus on education and in therapy and also in faith formation about getting the right information into our heads. But he, then he says, it's actually not the information that changes us, but our, our lives are run more to, this, to the speed of the stories that we believe and the practices that we do. Those are the things that really form us into the people we are. And as an example, he says that Western Christianity focuses on giving people the right beliefs, that we focus getting the right beliefs into people's brains. So we have thick beliefs. And uh, one of the ways we could test this is to say, I could give out a uh, test, a physical test to each one of us and ask, you know, four or five questions about historic Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian? Is Jesus the son of God? You know, did Jesus save you? All these different questions. And you probably get it, most of it right, if not all of it right. But he says, our practices and our stories are actually quite thin. The things that really mobilize us. So for example, we just did a long series on a rule of life. And very, very few of us would, would have the ability to articulate how our practices match up to these beliefs we have. And, and Smith says this is dangerous because our lives are actually much more formed by the stories that we believe, by the practices that we do, by the families that we come from, than just what we believe. 
Um, Pete Scazzaro, who wrote Emotionally Healthy Leadership, said, uh, Jesus might be in your heart or your head, but grandpa is in your bones. Jesus, we may have the right thoughts about Jesus, but grandpa, the stories from our family is actually what uh, puts forward how we live in the world. But our culture does the opposite. We have very thin beliefs about things. Nobody comes and tells you that you should believe in consumerism and tells you this is, this is how you should believe about the world. But rather, we have fixed stories and practices that help us to believe the, the, about consumerism, for example. So we have um, lots of advertisements that we'll see that put products in front of us that say, if you get this product, you will be happy. You will have the good life. And then we practice that. We go onto Amazon and we buy it and we expect it to show up in our house in 24 hours. And there's that anticipation level of getting that new thing. So before we go onto Amazon, Jeff Bezos doesn't come to our house and say with a tract and say, here's what you need to believe in order to be a consumer. No, we just go on and with one click, we purchase that thing. James K. Smith says it this way. It's not a set of propositions. It's not a set of statements or an intellectual exchange, but a tactile, visceral, embodied experience that over time really is recruiting your heart, your loves, and your longings to long for this vision of flourishing, this vision of the good life. And when you analyze it biblically, I think that you'll see it's a rival gospel. He'd say that our hearts are like compasses that are trained by the things that we do in the stories that we believe. And uh, our world, slowly over time, points it at a different vision of the good life. Different, a vision that's different from the Bible, that's different from Genesis 1. And it's our practices and the stories that actually point our heart in this direction. Genesis 1 is trying to draw us back as embodied people to say that it's important how we live our lives. If we want our lives to actually be pointed at the good life that Genesis 1 calls us to and the Bible calls us to, we have to be focused on being embodied people, not just brains on a stick. Secondly, um, we need to recognize that our bodies are integral not only to becoming like God, but to knowing ourselves. I've mentioned this book before, The Body Keeps Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And in it, he says there's many things in our lives that hurt us. He gives a couple examples. One in five Americans have been molested. One in four Americans grew up with alcoholic parents. And one in three couples have engaged in physical violence. These are atrocious statistics. He says these things all cause trauma that we hold in our bodies, that not only our brains, but our chemistry and our physical bodies uh, are reshaped by this trauma, by the things that we experience. So we have to know and be aware of our bodies to understand how we're holding that. And he also says the key to healing is embodied as well. Not only that we carry trauma in our body, but the key to healing is not only believing the right things about ourselves, but also an embodied healing. And he talks about how community is so important. We see that in Genesis 1, that God not only comes and creates people, but he is speaking words over them. He is in community with them and telling them, you are blessed you are good. It's important that we listen to our body in order to have healing. It's a quintessential dimension of humanity and of healing. And uh, I, I know at this point, some of you might be saying, wow, this sounds like really new agey or something like that. And I'm not I'm trying to say that this can't go wrong, that we can't over-focus on our bodies. And that's what I think a lot of the focus on embodiment right now is doing, is putting our bodies into the place of God. It can go wrong, but we can also go wrong, we can err on the other side by not paying attention to our bodies. 
And so Genesis 1 is that call back to remind ourselves that we are embodied people, that we are bodies. Thirdly, embodiment is at the heart of how we relate to one another. So if you're watching this now, um, you and I are engaging in a disembodied way. I am speaking to you. You're watching, hopefully. Um, and uh, this isn't just uh, running in the background while you're doing something else. But we're, in, we're engaging in a disembodied way. And over time, as James K. Smith says, this puts a sense of distance between you and I. If uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, watching one or two of these at home probably wasn't a big deal. But over the year and a half that we've had to be distanced with each other, we sense that, that we are farther away from each other, that there is something actually disembodied about our engagements with each other. There's a lack in the communication that we have and our, our relationship with one another. In her book, Alone Together, Sherry Turk says this, digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our networked lives allow us to hide from each other, even as we are tethered to each other. And this is what we experience, as great as it is to be able to connect over video in this time that we have not been able to be together, we also don't get the demands of friendship. We are not as tethered to each other and in relationship with each other as we might want or think. So today I want to notice what uh, being embodied looks like in Genesis 1, specifically in verse 27. So let's look at that together. It says, God created man in his own image. Now here, our translation doesn't do the best job because the word man here is the word Adam in Hebrew, or we might say Adam in English. Now, when I use the word in Adam or Adam in reference to the Bible, you probably think of a man, uh, a single man by himself, and uh, probably the Adam that's about to come up in the next couple stories of Genesis. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but everybody that I read agrees that when we use this word or when the word Adam appears here, it should not point to a proper noun. It should not point to a person, Adam, nor should it point to males in general, which is how it's translated in our translation. Rather, we should translate it as humans because that's what it's actually referring to, all of humans. And it used to be mankind. Now we don't use that word as often. Uh, so it'd be better to translate it humans. One of my favorite comments uh, from this came from Hebrew expert and regent professor Ian Proven. He said, to translate Adam as man is not a wise or even justified translation given the modern connotations. The modern connotations being that it refers only to men. It's fine to say, we don't mean just man when we use the term man. To which my answer is, if you don't mean to say it, then why are you saying it? He's saying, choose another word human, not man. So that's what we're going to do. So our passage then would read, God created humans in his own image. He created them in the image of God. Then we read, he created them male and female. Now, five things I want us to notice about this last sentence, that he created them male and female. First, as we've said, all humans are created in the image of God. That is very clear in Genesis 1. Number two, there is a difference in the humans that are created in the image of God. And this difference is male and female. Number three, the difference is a biological difference and not a social difference. The difference in Genesis 1 is a biological and not a social difference. So using our modern day categories, we could say that this passage describes sex and not gender. Gender in our society can mean how, for example, men act in general or what I feel like my gender is inside in the conversation about gender spectrum. 
Sex, on the other hand, is a biological difference. That outside of a very small number of people, we are biologically either male or female. And so Genesis 1 is saying there is this biological difference between men and women. Now today, this is, of course, a very controversial thing to say. So let me quote two people um, that would agree with Genesis 1, even though they probably may not agree with us as Christians. So the first is Paul Griffiths. He is a professor at a university, a biology professor. He says this, It is uncontroversial among biologists that many species have two distinct biological sexes. They're distinguished by the way that they package their DNA into gametes, the sex cells that merge to make new, a new organism. Males pr produce small game teas and females produce large game teas. Male and female game teas are very different in structure as well as in size. This is familiar from human sperm and eggs, and the same is true in worms, flies, fish, mollusks, trees, grass, and so forth. So he's saying this is actually a not controversial statement at all, even today, that there are biological men, biological women. Phyllis Bird, who is a United Minister, a feminist, and an Old Testament scholar, says this. The categories of male and female are indispensable to their understanding of humankind by explicit attention to the sexual differentiation of the species. Sex is the constitutive differentiation observable at birth and encoded in our genes, essential for the survival of the species, and basic to all systems of social socialization. It plays a fundamental role in the identity formation of every individual. It must consequently be regarded as an essential datum in any attempt to define the human being and the nature of humankind, and thus provides a primary test for false notions of generic humanity. She is saying the same thing, that there is a biological difference between males and females. So there's a difference, but note fourth, this difference is not bad in the Bible, but good. God says after every part of creation, it is good. And after creating people, he looks at all that he has made, male and female, and he says it's very good. So not only are our physical bodies good, something that we may have a hard time believing today, but it's good that they are different from one another, that we are biologically different, that we have men and women. This is a good thing and not a problem, according to Genesis 1. And then finally, not only is difference good, but it's necessary. If we look at verse 28, we'll understand why, what the purpose of men and women are. It says, God blessed them, and God says to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So our differences are necessary for the activity that God is calling these people to. That in order to multiply, it's going to take biological difference. Men and women working together to multiply and fill the earth. And it also means that to be in, the or, or in order to be made in the image of God, it's going to take men and women working together. In order to reflect God into the world, and in order to carry on his creative and ordering work in the world, we need men and women working together. Now, this would have been an absolutely earth-shattering thing in the ancient Near East. Because in the ancient Near East, people are an afterthought. We've talked about some of these stories, that they go from either being cheap labor to leftovers of the dead gods. Um, and it's only thought that kings were maybe created in the image of God. They were lifted up and all the rest of the people were supposed to serve them. And not only that, but in those societies, women were generally at lower than men. And so we've got kings, we've got men, and then we've got women as a, a general ordering. But Genesis 1 is saying something different, that both men and women together 
image God, they are valuable, that their differences are key to the human project. Richard Middleton puts it this way, in the claim, it is the claim of Genesis 1 that God granted a royal priestly identity as a Mago Dei to all humanity, whereas the power in Babylonian and Assyrian empires was concentrated in the hands of a few, power in Genesis 1 is diffused or shared. No longer is the image of God applied only to a privileged elite, to kings, for example. Rather, all human beings, male and female, are created as God's royal stewards, entrusted with the privileged task of ruling on God's behalf. This democratizing of the Imago Dei in Genesis 1 constitutes an implicit critique of the entire royal and priestly structures of ancient Mesopotamian society. His book is called The Liberating Image. That the image put forward in Genesis 1 is an amazingly liberating one, not only for women, but for all of humankind. And as I've been studying Genesis 1, in comparison to its ancient Near Eastern neighbors and their stories, uh, one, one thing I read stuck out, stood out to me. A commentator said that either the people in Genesis 1 were theological geniuses that wrote Genesis 1, or the story comes from a real God that resonates deeply with who we are as human beings. Because nothing like this, nothing like this view of humans exists in the neighboring societies. It's as uh, Richard Middleton says, it's a liberating view and it's a democratizing view that men and women with our differences together are made to reflect the God of the universe and carry on this work of his creative work in the world. Now, the story of our Bible doesn't end in Genesis 1, as we all know. It starts in this first passage with human beings as good and differentiated and working together. And in Genesis 2, it carries the story on where there's a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. And it says that the woman is made from the rib or the side of the man. And uh, um, this, this translation, rib, is probably not the best. Uh, this, this word that's translated rib is often used as an architectural term. So it's talked about the side of the tabernacle tabernacle, for example. So what many scholars would say is it's actually the second side of Adam that's created, that, that the woman is, we might say in English, his other half, or we sometimes jokingly say the better half. And this is how Adam approaches it. He says, this one at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this one shall be called woman for from man, this one was taken. Therefore, does a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they become one flesh. And the two of them were naked the man and the woman, and they were not ashamed. This passage shows not only the closeness that they have with God, but the closeness that they have with one another. That even though they are different, they are so close that they're able to be naked and unashamed with each other. That they are one flesh, as he says. But then in Genesis 3, the next story, we see the opposite happen. That men and women rebel against God. And the first thing that they notice when this uh, relationship with God is broken, when they t stop trying to reflect him into the world and become, try rather to be their own gods, is that the eyes of both of them were opened, it says in chapter three, verse seven. And they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Remember back to Genesis two, that they were naked and unashamed. When they notice now that they are naked, they become ashamed. And their differences now become something that instead of drawing them together into one, push them away from one another. And I think for many of us, this is closer to the story that we live in when we think about our bodies or the differences between men and women in the world. We feel ashamed when we look in the mirror. 
where we feel hopeless that our bodies are something that can be used by God or hopeless that men and women could ever work together. Some of us may feel angered. Women may feel angered about, you know, if you, if you read about how much women are less are, are paid less in the world, you might feel angry. Some men uh, might feel angry when women tell them that men are the problem. And they, these differences become something of anger and something that, that put um, enmity between us. And we may feel that it's out of control, that we don't know how to roll this back and recapture the vision from Genesis 1 in our world. Because we're, our, our lives are so far from the words that are used in Genesis 1, that, that our bodies are good and blessed, and that the differences between us are good and blessed. And we could survey the Bible and history and our own lives and tell story after story of how our bodies have not been a site for shalom and imaging God, but sites of shame and alienation. We see bodies enslaved and traded, bodies abused and diseased, bodies broken and shamed, and bodies worshipped as if they were gods, the creation itself becoming gods. And we could survey the Bible history in our own lives and tell story after story of how the difference between men and women have not been a way of working together and mirroring God, but rather differences that are used to create division. From gender dysphoria to gender-based violence to men abusing and degrading women and women degrading men. So how can we even believe, start to believe that our bodies can be good, something used to actually reflect God into the world? And how could we even start to hope that we could find a way for men and women together to reflect this glorious God that we see in Genesis 1 in our differences? Well, I want to close by talking about two things. The first is the great promise. You know, John 1, much later in the Bible, starts with the same words as Genesis 1, in the beginning. And it's signaling to us that it's joining up with Genesis 1, that it's going to be a reflection of that story, that there's a creation or recreation narrative happening. But it's also signaling that something new is going on. And in verse 14, it says something that's absolutely astonishing. It says, the word became flesh. That instead of what we see in Genesis 1, that God is using his words to create humans, God himself, the word, is becoming flesh, is becoming human. And theologians will often say this is the strongest affirmation of bodily life and embodiment in the Bible, that God would become human. Because when he comes, he doesn't come as some disembodied spirit, but he comes as a body, as a human in a body. And it's not a superhuman body. It's one that experiences all the embodied life that we have. Jesus laughs. Jesus sits. Jesus experiences racism. Jesus eats. Jesus fasts. Jesus bleeds. Jesus is bruised. Jesus dies. And here's the second half of John 1.14. It says, The Word took on flesh. That Jesus came as an embodied human. Then it says, we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It's saying something astonishing that in this broken body that we all know that we have in this world, that Jesus was able to recapture the vision of what it means to be human, that he is sharing or he is showing us the image of God, the glory of God, that he is like God. And he's saying that there's a possibility that even in our broken bodies, we can continue to do what we were made to do, reflect the image and glory of God and become like him. And ultimately, the way that Jesus reflects God and shows his glory is through his death and resurrection. This is the greatest reflection of who God is, his love 
and his sacrifice and his grace. And it's accomplished, we have to remember, through his body. That he creates by his word and his embodied body, Jesus, is broken for us. And the message of Jesus is the same as Genesis 1 that we talked about at the very outset and we've been talking about this whole series, that there is a God. You and I are not that God. We are made as images of God. But we cannot save or recreate ourselves. We need this word spoken over us, this recreation. We are extremely valuable, but the Bible would say we're broken and enslaved, if you remember back to our study in the Gospel of Mark. And in Jesus, the word become flesh, we can be freed and set right. And Jesus proclaims over us these words again from Genesis 1. You are not God, but you are good. And Christ did not just die our souls to save, but our whole selves to save, our embodied selves. And he comes to reset us to this vision of participating in extending shalom into the world. He says, through my recreation, I reinstill you into this place of being good, being the image of God, becoming like God and reflecting his glory into the world. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's what he calls us to do. And this is the great hope that we have. And it doesn't start like our world does, by looking in the mirror, by standing in front of the mirror and saying to ourselves, my body is okay and good, although that's fine. It doesn't start with staying off social media and all the maybe toxic body image stuff that's happening there, uh, the things that make us feel terrible about who we are. Or it doesn't start with shaming those people who are shaming our bodies or ignoring our bodies and pretending that it doesn't really matter whatever we look like, whatever uh, we do to our bodies, that it doesn't matter at all. None of those things are the vision the Bible has of what it means to be human and how we recapture being good, embodied bodies made in the image of God and becoming like him. What it says to do is to look at Jesus, to start with the word became flesh and to see his body broken for you his blood shed for you, the glory of God, full in grace and truth. And that's what we do when we take communion together. It's an embodied practice that not only with our words, but with our bodies, we take Jesus in this message of goodness and grace and recreation and the hope that something can be made with our bodies. That's the first thing, the great hope that we have in Jesus. And then the second is the great practice because we are embodied people, that we bear the image of God together. Every year I listen to the Massey Lectures. They're a wonderful set of lectures uh, that's put on by CBC, and they've had an amazing amount and an array of different Canadians that come speak uh, at them. And in 2019, it was acclaimed journalist Sally Armstrong. Throughout her career, she's focused on the plight of women and girls and the stories that they tell. And her set of lectures was called Power Shift, how we can shift in Canada and the world so that women aren't second-class citizens. And it was an amazing set of lectures, but one story stood out to me. She tells a story about going to Afghanistan to visit a women's group called Young Women for Change. And she says, you have to have some nerve to make a women's group in Afghanistan. These aren't just people who are, you know, uh, like uh, slacktivists. They are people who are going full out because this is Afghanistan. So she was excited. She showed up at their meeting. And when she walked in, she was astonished because half of the people at this meeting were men. So she grabbed one of the leaders and she pulled them aside. She said, hey, what's going on here? Like, what's with all the guys? I thought you were young women for change. And they said to her something she said she'll never forget. She said, we'll never get to the finish line unless we get there together. She said this, and I quote from her lecture. If you remember one thing from this lecture, I hope it's this. 
It takes both of us. And it's always taken both of us. And until we do that together, we're not going to get to the finish line. The message of Genesis 1 is strikingly similar. That we together were made to bear the image of God. And we will not bear the image of God by trying to become the same. That there is no difference between us. And we will not bear the image of God by leaving each other out or pushing each other down. But it will take both of us working together. The Bible gives us the vision for this, that we were made to showcase the majesty and the glory of the God that we see in Genesis 1, this glorious creative God. And we'll only do this by working together. And the New Testament carries this vision forward, that we are not the same. We are different. And Paul, when he writes of the church, uses this image of a body, that we are like a body with different kinds of parts. It's not sameness that we have, but unity. We are different, but we're united in Jesus. And so we're going to be different. The question is just how we'll use that difference. Are they going to become things that have become markers to shame and debate? Or are they going to become things that actually enable us to carry the image of God in the world? And in Jesus, he again calls us or gives us the power to carry out this vision that we see in Genesis 1, that we see throughout the New Testament, that we are different but together, it's only when we work together that we are able to reflect the God of the universe. And Jesus comes and he is different from us. He is God become human. But he doesn't use his difference as a tool for power, rather for service and for unity. He says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve others. I didn't come to hold on to my life, but to lose it. And this is the same vision that he gives to each one of us. If we're going to work together, it's not to make our differences something that Jesus says Lord, we lord over other people, but rather that we find ourselves unified in Christ. There's a great saying that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That we come with our differences and we come to Jesus who unifies us. The God who gave himself up for us. And we, in following him, becoming nothing, put our differences at his feet and say, not this difference isn't going to be used for my own identity, for my own politics, for my own purposes, but rather for yours. And we become unified in Christ himself in order that our differences can be things that are used for his kingdom and his glory. And this is the vision that we have, that by working together, we, in united in Christ, we would be able to reflect the God of the universe. It's the oldest story. It's a story from Genesis 1, but it's still something that plagues us today. And so the vision and the hope that we have is in Jesus, that we can overcome these differences, that we can overcome the shame that we have in our bodies and the ways that we try to escape our bodies. And we also have this vision that we're called to carry on as a church. What would it look like if we didn't let our differences become things that held us back or things that we tried to homogenize, but rather things that we could become unified together with in the power of Jesus himself. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for the vision of this passage. And uh, as we talked about, the history of humanity is littered with ways that we've failed. Jesus, we praise you for coming to give us hope and to give us the power to relive back into this statement and to this idea of what it means to be human, that in our differences that, we are, that you proclaim over us and over our embodied uh, selves that we are good, and that you call us to live in our bodies, in our differences, together for your kingdom and your glory. So may that be true of each one of us. May it be true of our church. And as we do that, may it reflect you into the world, that your image and likeness would be reflected 
We pray that as people see it, they would bring their prayer and their worship to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.